0: Hello. These days, mental health is at the forefront of all of our minds. But what we are also seeing is that it's those very people who help us get better when we're sick who are struggling with the worst effects of this particular crisis. In this series, we'll be exploring how mental illness is rising amongst healthcare professionals faster than any other sector of society, and we'll also look at ways that brilliant people around the world are finding new ways to help those who help us. Welcome! to the Healing the Healers podcast series with me, Dr. Tapas Mukherjee, Medical Director at the Havas Links Group. And hello from me, Dr. Freddie Lewis, Senior Medical Advisor at Havas Links Group, as we discuss what we in the wider healthcare community can do about it. With special guests from around the UK, mental health experts, and great minds from across the Havas network itself. This series promises to be insightful, emotional at times, And above all else, a timely reminder that mental health challenges can affect any one of us. This podcast will contain references to suicide and mental illness, which may distress you or stir up some unwelcome emotions or memories of mental health issues. So listener discretion is advised if you believe you may be affected. Without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. This week, I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by one of our New colleagues to have us, but also an incredibly well-accomplished professor and clinician in her own right. It's Professor Eva Guinan. She has such a long title, and it's so impressive, that I don't think I will be able to do justice to it. So I'm going to get Eva to introduce herself in a moment. But the way we set up this particular episode is interesting in itself. What happened was Eva was reading through our white paper and she had a number of comments which were a combination of positives and some negative takeaways from her first impressions of what we had created and we just thought it was so interesting to explore that it was worth setting up a podcast just around that. So before I go into those topics and questions, Eva, why don't you uh, give us a short introduction as to who you are?
1: So I'm a pediatric hematologist-oncologist in the U.S. in um, Boston at Harvard Medical School and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I am a bone marrow transplanter in terms of what my clinical practice is. I also run a lab that works on immunology type research in this area and have for many years. And um, I uh, work with people over at Harvard Business School trying to understand how innovation advances. In healthcare, and in particular, why we are so bad at studying ourselves and at fixing what we do, and I think that last piece really dovetails into this larger discussion as well as my medical experience.
0: Why don't we start with that? You you mentioned that you know there are challenges with introducing innovation, or do you think that it's the mindset towards innovation? What are some of the things that you you feel?
1: Well, I think. Especially in in terms of sort of the larger theme of this discussion, uh, one of the things that we found is that um, healthcare and science professionals are um, (laughs) very averse to scrutiny. So they're not very sympathetic to people studying them. So they are spending their lives studying other people and what happens to other people and other systems. But if you turn the lens on their own practices, they're really very resistant, even though what you are doing is intended to help them. So that, that is something that we've really found. We've also found that they're very um, limited in terms of their ability to form new collaborations, to be creative about the collaborations that they find and the supports that they find, um, and, and somewhat lacking in, in sort of having a broad exploratory philosophy about how they search that landscape. Um, so, I think those are some of the critical things we found. And then the other is just that if you look across all kinds of evaluators of different scientific, clinical, translational, you know, things that affect people, things that are supposed to go into clinical medicine projects, what you see is the more innovative the proposal is, the more the resistance is. And it's not like that's unique, however, to healthcare providers at all, but the resistance to innovation. Um, which we have named and written about now quite a bit, which is, and called the novelty discount, is very, very real, very reproducible, um, and somewhat surprisingly starts from it with very young investigators or clinicians and goes all the way up to very senior faculty. So we had hypothesized that it would be more prevalent in senior faculty, but it isn't. It's all along the line.
0: And I can see now exactly why you say that's so relevant to today's discussion. One of the things that I do remember is that you, um, you picked up on the use of the word fear in the white paper, and we use it a few times throughout the, the paper. But specifically, I remember one of the things that w- we, when we delved into um, the, the research, especially the qualitative research and the comments that the doctors themselves had left in answer to some of the questions, there was a real fear of change a real fear of um, unknown. There was also a fear of, uh, perhaps you could say a culture of fear where there was a little bit of um, a a mistrust sometimes of colleagues and and what new colleagues coming into the department might have in terms of an agenda and so on. What what was your thoughts on that?
1: I think that, I think it is a very fearful workforce and I think it is a very fear-inducing environment in which to work. And I... Have thought a lot about our previous conversation because until we started talking about it, I don't think I had. I know, no, I don't think I had not articulated that to myself. I mean, as a as a real concept, and and I was led there first to think about it by the white paper, which I thought, you know, clearly enunciated that as a concern. Um, but on more reflection, I actually think that it is an element of the discomfort that people feel in pretty much every aspect of their work at present. So to give a few um, examples of aspects that I think, so one is you just said fewer of your colleagues, and I think that that's true. So, you know, at least in the U.S., but I mean, also true in many other systems. And of course, it depends on whether you're in practice or whether you're in an academic setting. But the truth is, there's sort of a fear of competition right so there's a fear of being replaced whereas i think you know 40 years ago people practiced medicine until they were probably too old to practice and then they retired um But now I think there is this fear of replacement, you know, replacement by AI, replacement by some algorithmic process that doesn't depend on you really at all, other than as some sort of cog in the wheel that puts a signature on something. Um, The the fear of your colleagues, who are colleagues, but also competitors for the same sort of space. um, When a firm be it a small healthcare, you know, private practice or a large one, a big hospital is constantly telling you that they're looking for economic efficiencies. I mean, I think everyone feels vulnerable, right? Because that's a very quick way to address economic inefficiency. When healthcare practices are being bought up by private equity, uh, then you know, there's this fear that there's going to be a very different sort of uh, atmosphere about how one is judged. And I think there's a fear about judgment, period, judging you as a, um, uh, judging you in terms of competence, judging you in terms of productivity, and there's this fear that you're going to be found lacking, and then there's the kind of fear that is also about vulnerability. And those are two different things, actually. One is a sort of competence-based thing, and two is just this general vulnerability. This is a workplace, however situated, uh, that is you know, appropriately concerned about diversity and equity and inclusion and correctness and being careful about making sure that personal interactions um, don't transgress publicly accepted norms or publicly imposed norms or however one wants to sort of uh, view some of these. And so I think there's also this fearful sense about Somehow transgressing those lines because now the response to any such transgression is that you get reported, and the and the consequences of being reported for saying something that may have been inadvertent or you know whatever are felt to be much more significant than they were before. And I think a lot of that is rolled out in very bad ways and poorly poorly understood. So there are. Fears of legitimately being inappropriate in ways that people don't want to be, and then fears of being misinterpreted. Um, and you know those are two very different things in practice, but probably both fear-inducing. So I think there's economic fear. I think there's social fear. There's a real embedded fear in physicians always about not being good enough. The personal fear of failing a patient because you make a wrong judgment. And it's impossible to be correct all the time. And one of the things that you learn in medicine is that you will be incorrect. And then how do you manage that? How do you manage the patient? How do you manage yourself? How do you manage your environment? It is an omnipresent fear and, and appropriately so because the consequences of making a wrong judgment can be devastating. They may be trivial, but they can be devastating. Now, with the pace of knowledge changing so quickly, and the number of tools available to address things being so much more numerous, the opportunity to fail to make the best choice, which is different than making a bad choice, right? You know that from your own practice. The fear of not making the best choice, and then there's a fear of not making a correct choice, and then there's a fear of making a devastatingly bad choice. And that fear, which I think is really about moral injury and moral, just dis- not moral injury, moral distress, around that failure is exacerbated by the public nature of that choice as well, and concerns about how that's going to play out. So I think think there's just fear all over the place, and that makes for very anxiety-provoking environment, particularly with people who are already frayed at the edges
0: I mean, that, that was a great answer. I really um, appreciate you exploring so many different facets of fear and going through from, you know, diagnosis to colleagues and the, the, how it makes you feel and how the public perceive it. One of the things that um, I really sort of thought about, as you were saying, it was that other industries sometimes do manage to learn from mistakes, whereas it feels like we fearful of those mistakes and maybe we try to hide them or we try to downplay them and we try to celebrate when times are good but you're you're kind of by yourself a little bit if you make a mistake it's very quickly to then you know point a finger or um, have to account for yourself that culture doesn't help but I wonder why is it that we've ended up in that sort of a situation or do you agree that's the kind of uh, environment that we sometimes work in that we have to uh, be seen to you know obviously minimize errors but also it's we're fearful to even say, oh, I made an error. Here's something we can all learn from. It's not necessarily like that.
1: You know, there there is a counter movement, right, which has been around for a long time, which is that, you know, you should always report errors. And there's a movement to try to teach people how to talk to patients if there's been errors, but it's still cast. And that's important. But I think it still doesn't leave people, I think, less fearful about that. Right. So it makes them just as fearful. It may provide some better instruction of what to do with it. It does or it doesn't provide means of of remediation, personal absolution. So I think there's some consciousness of that. But I don't think that the global integrated sense of Sort of, you know, people's heart rate rising when they go to work, so to speak, every day about sort of the many ways in which they can fail a colleague, fail their institution, fail a patient, fail themselves is really mitigated by any of the things that we've done. And as to your very astute question about why do I think that's happened I think part part of it has been this sort of movement toward metrics. And I I don't mean this as a criticism. I think it's a necessary outfall. The more and more metrics of performance that you have, and I'm the last to say you shouldn't have metrics, you should have metrics. But an unintended consequence of having metrics is metrics are by definition a scale. And so someone always comes out better and someone always comes out worse. So that's good because it allows you to identify poor performance but poor performance in sort of working in other industries i think is largely seen as a real opportunity for improvement whereas here poor performance i think there's a sense um and you know this is a very global statement so i you know in some settings it, this is not true at all but i think there is a sort of gloss of a sense that you know poor metrics may also be just a opportunity to identify someone as performing poorly as opposed to globally seeking an opportunity to sort of make the assembly line work better or, you know, improve productivity per acre. I think here there's a more personal component to it. And since a lot of medicine is still about individual choices, for example, if you think about COVID, one would prefer not to think about COVID um, at all. But if you think about COVID and the vaccines and the, the whole sort of problem that COVID and vaccines became. And you think about it from the position of physicians and other healthcare providers, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, and you reflect backwards and think, what in God's name were people actually supposed to tell people about the vaccines, right? I mean, it was bad data, and anybody in healthcare knew that it was bad data, and we knew that the analyses were premature, and we knew that the data capture was imperfect, and we knew that a lot of the side effects weren't being captured anyway. You know, all of the concern about myocarditis is kind of obfuscated, or it, there's, this, there's this overlying reality, which is most people don't get diagnosed. So the data is by definition incorrect. And and I think people knew that, but the data was usually three months ahead, and they're trying to advise people. And then three months later, they find out X. So now you go, oh, that's not what I would have told people at all. I would have told people something different. That's a lot to do in a short period of time. If you multiply that by 10 different clinical issues, you know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty and then... You know, there is this moral distress about, did I tell all these people the wrong thing? Uh, Did I believe the wrong sources of information? Was I not sophisticated enough as a biostatistician to analyze that data? And you don't stop and go, oh, yeah. And everybody else in the UK did the same thing because they were told the same thing. You just feel about what you did. And so I think there is this isolated part of it where you don't sort of roll it out to your profession, but you just feel it personally.
0: Right, that's a really interesting point. I I think that's a really, it's a really good point, and I don't think um, nobody's ever made that that point before. At least, you know, I've not heard it uh, vocalized before. That the the rate of change was so fast, you were inevitably having to say things which were were probably going to be wrong by the new science of three four months in the future, and the fact that that's a big personal hit for every single person, even though they were going through it as a group, they were taking it individually. That's uh, that's such an interesting point. You know, the other thing that it just got me thinking was that the media was very quick, quick to criticise as well. I think in some cases, right, that, that that people didn't know what they were talking about, and certainly on social media, there were some really you know cutting statements, and it didn't help that probably strengthened the anti-vax uh, opinions in that respect. This brings me on to maybe our second major question, which is. I remember you saying you looked at that infographic that we have in the white paper and it's called Death by a Thousand Cuts. There's no one thing that this issue of burnout and mental health problems and today's stresses is, is is accountable to. It's several things. I'd love if you could just talk about that a little bit and and say how that resonates with yourself.
1: Well, so first of all, and not because you all put that together in your infographic, but I have to tell you that and I have looked at that many, many times Uh, as a sort of way for me to gather my thoughts, not so much for this, but just in generally about sort of how I feel about my profession and what's going on. First of all, I think it's brilliant. And I think it's brilliant because everyone's, I think there is death by a thousand cuts and everyone's experience of those cuts is highly individualized. It's some sort of amalgam of, you know, some number of those, but not all of those, because not all of them are pertinent or not all of them have occurred to you or, or you don't, resonate to the pain of one of those cuts as much or whatever. Um, So I think it's absolutely brilliant because you can look at it and you can understand sort of, and feel some um, recognition that, yeah, there are a whole bunch of other people who also have felt this as a negative in their lives or find this as a, as a prompt for exhaustion or um, depression or whatever. Um, So I I think that aggregated approach um, to just showing that there are many, many small experiences and and then you start to see when you look at those small experiences, yeah, if I sort of stacked those individual experiences of mine, they wouldn't be like a line, they would be a a pie shape, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That that really occupied some real space. I thought that that was very very powerful and I think as a an explanation for the acceleration of um, exhaustion, um, if you will, among the healthcare workforce, it's also really powerful because clearly some of those experiences will differ by geography. Many are common, but some will differ. So seeing it splayed out also allows you to identify things that may be common in your particular setting or in your particular, particular cultural or for that matter, religious or other affiliated context that resonate for you. So it lets you personalize as well as sort of recognizing your commonality.
0: I think one of the thought that comes to mind, I feel like a lot of the factors are outside of the control of an individual. There are things that are imposed upon them, like the media, like a new rotor, like antisocial working hours. They're not all in your control. And I think that itself is stressful. When you can't do anything about it, that's that's difficult. Um, And it also goes directly against the old school way of approaching this, which is to say, let's give you some resilience training. Let's look at you as the problem. The problem is not an individual. The problem is it's out of their control. It's, it's all of these external stresses, which um, are not being uh, addressed and are perhaps impossible to address sometimes. I really uh, appreciate your take on it as well. Um, there was something that we spoke about earlier, which was Um, We alluded to this idea of trust leading into fear. And you you also spoke a little bit about how certain nods towards or attempts to bring in diversity can itself be stressful in in indirect ways. You've also in the past spoken about what on the surface, at least, could be seen as an attempt to make a physician's life easier by bringing in physician associates, for example, or giving skills to nurses. But all of these things can also contribute the trust problem. Could you explain a little bit about that?:
1: Yeah, I, I think that um, I think both of those things, and they are sort of different. I mean, you know there's a diversity of healthcare workers now. I mean there, there always has been, but now it's much more routinized. Um, and I think that that, or I believe that that has grown without everyone really understanding how that integrates back together. And that includes, by the way, the patients, probably most importantly. So certainly the patients that I hear from, many of them not even my own, but who reach out to me from sort of past interactions and all this, you know, they don't understand why they're seeing a certain kind of healthcare provider. And they either feel shortchanged or they feel confused. And, And so it's become clear to me that the patients don't understand the assignment of a person to see them nor do they necessarily really understand the role. I think that physician extenders or advanced practice people, I'm sure named differently in different countries, probably have slightly different roles in different countries as well. Um, But I, I don't think those relationships, even to their supervising physicians, are particularly worked out. In some cases, there are no supervising physicians. It depends on what their role is. And so that's difficult. And requirements for documentation um, and um, delineation of care plans is very different by role. So I think this creates frictions that would be much better if we undertook to see really where they are and how they are contributing rather than ignoring them. They are part of our current practice models. And so therefore, uh, understanding their strengths um, but also really working to understand their weaknesses and uh, and how we can address those to make a more complete and compatible healthcare enterprise is really important. And we I, I do not believe that anyone has actually done that well, with the exception, perhaps, of um, the use of advanced practice people in very rural circumstances, where there is by default no much of this is diminished because there's exactly one provider and is the person on the ground, whether they are a physician, a dentist, a nurse practitioner, an EMT. I mean, if that's all there is, what there is no friction, right? And by friction, I don't even necessarily mean bad. I mean stuff that just isn't going along in a very well-oiled way. Um, it, so I think that undertaking to um, define and Improve that collaborative care model would be an adjunct to relieving um, some of the unnecessary stresses in the workplace, quite a bit for everyone concerned.
0: I think that's an interesting point that there's a role for innovation in certain contexts, and maybe it sometimes feels like there's. Um, this goes back to the idea that things are changing, and and it you can understand why it might harbour a little bit of mistrust. If you're a junior doctor who's trying to practice their arterial blood gas skills and someone else comes in and very quickly just keeps taking them because they need to practice their skills and they don't have the title of doctor and it creates a friction and it and that's a very real situation. And, and those things haven't been worked out.
1: Someone talked to me about something earlier this week um, and it struck me pursuant the conversation you and I had I had, had last time. So... Um, You know, as part of the very correctly directed attention to issues of diversity and equity and inclusion in the workplace, there's obviously a lot of concern about people being appropriate around gendered and personal commentary or conversations with those people with whom they work, as it should be. And I think as we all endorse. Um, But... When I said that this is not necessarily completely well thought out or implemented. So there is a female PhD working in a laboratory of one of my collaborators. And she is obviously at this point pregnant. I mean, either that or she has gained 50 pounds in peculiar places and whatever. But she has not mentioned being pregnant to anyone. Everyone in that lab, he came to talk to me, everyone in the lab, including him, is Afraid to say anything to her about including expressing happiness about her pregnancy, for fear that this would be uncomfortable for her for some reason, which you know it may well be. Um, but it's ludicrous in its own way because there is this person who is obviously very pregnant, and one day someone's going to call and say she's in labor. um and no one has had the opportunity to support her or be available to her. Or adjust their own work schedule in anticipation of this. So there's this odd unintended consequence. And he said, no, everybody's scared that saying something to her would be judged Is if she's not saying anything, then maybe it's because she really doesn't want to have any of these discussions as opposed to, you know, maybe she just also doesn't feel it's appropriate to interject this topic into her professional life.
0: Well, you know, it's such a, it, it is interesting because it's, it, 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 and it is obvious, but um, and I'm sure you're aware or you've heard this a similar statistic that like 70% of medical legal problems could be resolved or could have been resolved with better communication. But then in the reality um i'm sure you're also familiar that time and again things go wrong and like the most junior member in the room in the anesthetic room saw the oxygen was not turned on but didn't speak up because they felt like maybe the seniors were already on it or it's not their place to say it's not as simple as, as it sometimes sounds is it? it's so complicated just something as simple as in your you know in this example wishing somebody you know congratulations on being pregnant and so on it's it's just so complicated isn't it and it and if only it was so easy as to just say oh better communication will solve some of these but and they will but it's 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 difficult isn't it yeah no
1: it is a difficult road and so i think that part of this stress that people feel is that there are an enormous number of moving parts And many of them are very small, but it gets back to the death by a thousand cuts. It's, you know, you can't say this, you can't do this. It's not so much that you can't, but you feel uncomfortable. You feel like, you know, there may be a vulnerability or an inappropriateness. And both of those are things that you don't want to expose yourself to.
0: Yeah. You want trusted colleagues. This is why it's so important to have people you trust, because you can go and discuss things and you can go and say, oh, I was a little bit worried that I might have missed this earlier. What do you think? And you pull up an x-ray. And those things are just so important. I know in my day, I I definitely had my trusted go-to. When I knew I had made a mistake, or I was worried that something was, you know, keeping me up from the day before. Do you think um, we st- all of that still happens, or is it that th- even that is under threat? Has that changed in the time that you've been practicing this 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 thing that you can confide in colleagues?
1: Because there's a lot of stuff that's just done on the computer or done in sort of the setting of meetings that are highly structured. I think the uh, amount of free conversation is much more limited. So my my friends have said to me, many of them in very very different settings, all in oncology in this uh, particular example. But I mean, I have heard from innumerable people that yeah, rounds used to be, you know, We would take the chart. We would walk past the rooms. We would sort of talk about the patient. We would go in and see the patient. Or we would go in and see the patient. And then we would talk about the patient. But I mean, there was this sense of incorporation of the patient as a physical unit. Their problems and their perspectives on their problems being incorporated into the medical data, which was different, right? So there were different streams of data. And they were a data stream, if you want to call it that. I mean, for lots of things, including their emotional state and that now rounds are largely conducted either through Zoom you know, to be efficient and allow people to get on with their paperwork and with ordering, or people go and they sit in the back in a conference room and just chart round without seeing the patients collaboratively. And and I've not heard this once, I've heard this 20 times in the past three months from people in different signs of conversations, and it's also what I observe. If you think about that, that is so different Than what we espouse as a model of patient centric care. I mean, the only person who's not involved in that process is the patient. But but it's actually much greater than that. You know, that's sort of an easy out to say. But also, means that doctors in training don't get to see more experienced doctors interacting with the patient. And you learn negative and positive things. It's not all this positive. You get to see this great person walk in, I mean, you know, from your own training, some of the old, older doctors walked in and you go and you just went, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. Um, you know, uh, or you said, No, nah, you know, that's not how I would have approached this. And so then it makes you think through your practice, but if none of that is ever modeled for you.
0: Yeah. You're losing all that experience. Yeah. Which you would have got for free. yeah,
1: Yeah. I mean honestly this is the same argument that people make in some ways about texting right that if you spend your life texting people about stuff emojis included that your ability to read someone's emotional status becomes much more limited because you don't really understand i mean you are not in the mindset of watching facial expressions and body expressions and motion and all those sorts of of things that actually clue you into what a patient's doing, and I think that in many respects, when you think about why is healthcare stand out so much in terms of its stress right now, is that healthcare is by its nature the health of an individual. I mean, it is in public health sense communities, but these communities are aggregated individual experiences of cholera or of lung cancer or of COVID, um, or of obesity. And the practice model has moved away from all of the personal part. And the personal part, A, informs good care, but it also contributes to people's feeling of value in terms of being in the profession. And when you walk into the room, well, first of all, if you don't walk into the room, that's a very different model of care if you walk into the room knowing you have exactly 10 minutes to get out before the someone knocks on the door and says the next patient is there it completely changes the nation the nature of the professional satisfaction at every level competence
0: mm. yeah it's so many layers of stress as well doesn't it to to be Timed, to deliver everything you would have, but against the clock is, is a different mentality. Which brings me on to uh, a difficult one then, which is w- what are some of the things that you think can be done about it? Or what do you see around you that is positive? Um, and among all of this, is there or will there ever be a role for farmer in any of this in terms of positivity or helping to redress the balance, helping to improve safety, trust, mental health?
1: So, Tapas, you mentioned... Um, the issue of sort of trust and collaboration Mm -hmm. between Mm -hmm. care providers. And I think that is something that provides, and I was talking about sort of that knowledge is coming out of the fire hose so quickly that people can't drink from it, let alone even get out of the way. Um, And if you marry those kinds of ideas together, I think a place that pharma could potentially um, think about creatively is how to utilize the potential of groups. So, you know, perhaps, I mean, as a as a brain dead sort of simple example, I mean, rather than someone going and detailing one by one, everybody in a hallway, or sponsoring a seminar for 900 people who are not interacting with one another. Um, what if you set up really small discussion groups where data was presented? You gave people a little bit, you know, a sheet of paper with some facts on it with the, you know, this comes from here. And you set up small discussion groups, for example, where the the company gets the benefit of hearing not just one voice in isolation complaining or being harried and trying to get someone out of a room or whatever else, but it it allows those people to aggregate around the issue and to share their opinions about it and share their concerns. First of all, I think you walk out as a physician, a clinical physician or nurse or other care provider um, in those settings or, or integrals of those kinds of groups of care providers, the whole team instead of just the doctor, you have shared and exchanged opinions. You've heard the same information. And so therefore, I think applying that information feels more comfortable, right? Yeah. It, it has been attested to by other people. It has been agreed upon by other people. Or uniformly, people had some concerns, and you identified whether the data would need to be made available to convince you that this was rational or better or should be avoided. And I think that seizing on opportunities to do some aggregated learning for pharma and dissemination to care provision teams uh, could be an incredible opportunity to increase humanism. To increase collaboration and ultimately to increase trust, not just between pharma and care provision teams, but also among care providers themselves in terms of how they interface with pharma.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not a uh, basic idea. I think thinking back, as you were saying it, um, it reminded me of those small sessions we would sometimes have when maybe during a, a lunchtime meeting where they would, you'd have a few sandwiches provided and you'd all come and it was as much a social situation as it was a one-on-one. And I think the, the 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 problem with the one-on-one and you hit it, the nail on the head here, is that you will always have a slight part of you that there's an agenda here. And this might not be good practice, even if this is new data, you know, and, and I can see it's all there in front of me, black and white, but would my colleague do the same? I'm not so sure. And and being able to discuss it, it, it provides this kind of social proofing, this agreement, and also iron out any problems. What's the major barrier that we're going to hit? And you can think through it and you can model it right there and then. Yeah. At the same time, that provides like a teaching opportunity to juniors if they're there or, or to allied colleagues. That's a great idea. And I think at the other end of it, that idea that um, you have to travel halfway across the world and give up your your hospital clinics and family and go and sit at a conference to be able to interact with pharma, that needs to change. Like the weird model of just drop your whole life and go over. I did wonder if um, during the pandemic, the switch, the slight switch towards like remote conferences, if it was going to head in that direction towards having a sort of middle ground where conferences become more national rather than international. And you do have smaller and smaller groups. But it it doesn't seem to have happened. We seem to have gone back to the idea of big, large international conferences, which are fun as well.
1: I think when you have that smaller interchange, Mm. you can imagine that in that smaller thing, you know, somebody says, you know, here's drug A and here's what we have. And, you know, we think it would have this place. And somebody in that group says, you know, I noticed that you only had 2% people of African origin people of color more globally in this. And so I'm pretty comfortable with the data for people of Caucasian extraction, but I'm really concerned about what we know about pharmacology and East Asian individuals. Do you have plans to address that? And then either somebody says, well, actually, you know, we do have other data from another study. Let me show you that data. If we aggregate that in, that does, that's so great, then it addresses it. So then maybe people will use the drug more advisedly um, or with more comfort or uh, Or they can sit there and say, you know, you've convinced me I can use this in population X, but you've absolutely not convinced me that I can do this. I don't care if it's actually in your approval from EMA or from FDA or whatever else. You know, I'm uncomfortable. And and if you're in a group, just like you said, of, you know, 8, 10, 20 people, then people go, I don't know, I would do it. I mean, I don't really have any reason to believe this class of drugs. This all becomes... Uh, As you said, it it, it becomes validating and also I think pressure-releasing and social but also educational, but I think it's bi-directional. It's also a way of physicians feeling as if their voices are being heard by pharma. Right. So if there's a reporting function for, as you said, me, and it can be medium sized, I mean, compared to going to the ASH meeting or to EMA or what, or to uh, uh, like ESH, I mean, this is tiny, right? If you have 100 people who can still sort of put in comments, but I think probably, you know, 30 or less is probably better and people can actually talk. But I think if people also hear that feel like their voices are being heard, that that this also would create. Much more willingness to hear.
0: Yeah, more of a collaborative feel about it. Isn't it? And if anyone wants to get in touch privately with the, the rep afterwards, I'm sure they can. They can, you know, they can provide their details. Yep. Um, no, I think it's a great idea, and I, I'm keen to put that one forward to some of our colleagues in the farmer industry and see see if it's uh, of interest. I I can't see why it wouldn't be. Um, so thank you for that. I'm, I'm going to steal your idea, is what I've just publicly told everyone. But... Oh, go for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to come on to some some final questions now, which um, we always think these are going to be short, but they never are. They they end up becoming longer than the the rest of the podcast. But let's see how how long we have. I would love to know what is one key insight or idea that you will take away from this podcast um, into your day to day life.
1: I, in many ways, think that the infographic and thinking about what that infographic. Leads us toward, in terms of considering the locus of the care, the definition of the provider-to-patient-to-community relationship, allowing ourselves to see this much less monolithically, but contextually, and that in, in, in that it's not going to be explained by a cause in a context either, but by a multiplicity of causes, which can potentially be aggregated and analyzed by type. I mean, maybe in culture or practice setting X, a lot of it could be synthesized to issues of hierarchy. And in culture or or practice setting Y, it could be synthesized into aspects of privacy or um, collaboration or whatever. i would put money down if you took a more nuanced view that you would see lots of individual spice spikes. Um, but it has really made me think that you probably would come up with some aggregations and that the aggregation patterns would be different. And that might allow you to think more productively about how to, um, Address things rather than. I mean, you cannot address a thousand cuts in two thousand settings. But I, I bet if you did an analysis, as opposed to just de facto saying we need to fix our administration, if administration is not what's causing the complaints in your environment or your culture,
0: yeah, it's like what does your fingerprint look like in this? In this, yeah, exactly. That's a really nice idea.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's great. That's exactly right. What does your fingerprint yeah. look like?
0: That's a great idea. That's a lovely takeaway. Um, Let me ask you another one then. So, what's a for people interested in this whole area that we've we've touched upon today, which has spanned fear, trust, the changing healthcare like environment, uh, and of course, mental health? Do you have a favorite long read or book or uh, other podcast? You are allowed to say. in in this area something that appeals to you or you find helpful I,
1: you know i i i thought about that a lot and i read incessantly that's one of the ways that i sort of retrack my brain um so i'm not sure anymore than i can put i mean there are things you know you read stuff and it really it's like very exciting in the moment um there's a book, and I'm actually blanking on the name right now, by Paul Offit, who's, a, who's an infectious disease doctor that he wrote recently. I think it came out during the pandemic. I'm going to blank on the name of the book. But it is basically, it goes back through all these seminal medical advances and sort of tells the story of what really happened as opposed to what we think happened. And mostly what really happened is horrid in a lot of ways. It's certainly harder than what we think. And his real message is that in each of these, there were, I mean, he does the beginning of radiology with Curie and Rankin and what a disaster. I mean, the sheer numbers of people who were doing those experiences who died of cancer and died of lung fibrosis is astronomical. It's way beyond what I was ever told. And they died badly. And I mean, radiologists were showing up all over, baby radiologists, because it was a new field, were showing up all over Europe with no fingers on their hands. It was such a powerful story about how we want to cast the story.
0: Yeah. It feeds directly into this idea that we are uh, physicians have to be seen to be perfection and anything less is not acceptable. And yet the the history is missing several important chapters there where there were loads of failures and lots of errors.
1: It may not mitigate anxiety, but I think it allows you to put it in a place and to understand it's not just you. It's not necessarily just now. It is also, while it may be on steroids right now, it is part of the history. And understanding that all of that anxiety and pain actually produced advancement over time is helpful, but also just to sort of see it for what it is, as opposed to this romanticized thing where people walk into rooms and cure people and other people walk into rooms and comfort people. It's never been that simple. So that was the one that that struck me the most. And I should have looked up the title and I can't remember it, but it's all off at O-F-F-I-T-T, yeah.
0: <laughs> Maybe we can put it in our description at the end. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, And then, I I suppose, final question. uh, Is there anything you would change in terms of what we've done or uh, parts of the white paper that you think we could now go and develop even more? And I I think... I'll tell you what. I'll give you... I'll volunteer something from what you've already said, which is that the death by a thousand cuts, we've only just started to scratch the surface of where we go with that, maybe. Um, I, I think that it started to become apparent that we could start to use that in so many interesting ways to actually now start going beyond exploring what the problem is and starting to find ways to help just through that one infographic is a really interesting point. But 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 I'm I'm answering my own question partly here. But what no, is there anything like else the we answer. could be, <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you'd like us to change or do or where do we go from here do you think is have us?
1: There were a lot of things about how individual doctors might approach their issues, um, you know, as in the in the end part of the white paper about you know solutions, um, and most of it again was about working individually. But the more I've tried to observe people over the last month or two to see where I see these things play out, the more it occurs to me that trying to aggregate people in some way, and I don't mean in sterile environments. I think it really requires some sort of real work product. I mean, some real event. Um, our head of HR um, had gotten involved with um, Headspace and the people who started Headspace very close to the time that, that uh, he initiated it. And um, so I've heard him speak a couple of times. She's had him come and he's done sort of, you know, sessions with, a group of people in the room. And I'm talking about, you know, a small amphitheater that's got maybe 100, 150 people in it. And um, my sense whenever that happens is this is stupid. Um, And my sense at the end of any of those, when you look around the room, is that everyone has actually taken something away from that experience. I mean, there are a few people there who are sitting there with their cell phones. Um, And then there are 92% of the people who look really kind of enlightened, like that they could get themselves to sort of a different place, to a relaxed place, that there was actually a methodology. And they were talking among themselves about what they had just experienced. We are not, we are pushed increasingly far away from collaboration in our lives, in part because of media, um, how news comes to us. We don't shop in stores. You know, often we don't even go to the hospital anymore. We just sit on a Zoom meeting. So I, I think that opportunities to physically aggregate people, or maybe you can do it with Zoom as well, is if you hold the size down enough that people can actually interrupt each other. I think that this is something that is not much present in this paper. It talks about individuals or it talks about institutional and political reform, but doesn't come into the middle very much. So I think there's a middle space that could probably be considered mm. more.
0: And I think that's a, a lovely thing for us to investigate um, and explore next.
1: It was a good reminder about stopping talking and listening to what is going on around you in a way where you're actually trying to understand what is pushing those buttons. You know, where you're really actively observing and looking. And, and I suppose if there was a coda to this, What I would say is that the simple act of deliberately making you listen to your peers and your collaborators and think about what that reflects on practice can be incredibly rewarding.
0: And it sounds like you're referring to something quite specific there. Is that something you can elaborate on?
1: I walked in to see a patient, have known for a long time, is in the hospital with very grave problems. And I walked in and I said, So, you know, I mean, what you, you know, how are things going today? How are you feeling? And it was a person in their 20s whose parents were also there. And the father turns to me and says, Thank God. I said, Excuse me? (laughs) Like, I didn't think that was a big deal. I goes, You have no idea how relieved I am that you've asked me that question. And I mean, he's a huge international executive. So this is a man who is not usually offbeat in his communications yeah. and stuff like that. And I, and I said, OK, what what is so he goes, because everyone walks in here and starts telling us how busy they are. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, no, the doctors come in, the nurses come in, and he said, you know, they'll go, oh, you know, I'm so sorry that I'm late, but my day was really incredible. You know, I've just seen 40 patients, and I had to see them in 20 minutes, and I've all this documentation to do, and I'm just exhausted. He He said, our attending physician came in and put her head down on the counter while she was talking to us and just said she was exhausted.
0: Gosh.
1: I said, come on. He said, please, I mean, I run a company of like a million people. Don't, he said, I used to run a lot of these kinds of things and, you know, different departments. He said, no, they come in and they tell us about their problems when they're finished expressing how exhausted, how fed up, how you know, overwhelmed they are. And uh, it, it, he said in some weird attempt for us to be sympathetic, then they ask us a medical question. He goes, it's so unprofessional. Hmm. And it's so demeaning to us as patients. And I thought, I don't know, maybe he just had a weird... And then I started watching people and I realized that people were acting out their own exhaustion as a way of explaining themselves to their patient community, which is perverse, yeah, right? And also just not very helpful. I mean, yes, you should be a human with your patients, but not at the expense of saying you're actually not the problem, I am the problem. I mean, it was, and so I've been watching people and it's really common. And I share that only in the sense of not the specific example, but in the sense that if I had not been thinking about these issues, which was really prompted by the initial conversation that we had, I'm not sure I would have thought that much about it other than to think, oh, that doctor's inappropriate. But because we had the discussion, I started really thinking about it. And then I looked at all these other interactions and I thought, hmm, this happening all over the place. What is that telling me? Yeah. So I do think this educating us to be better observers of our own universes would perhaps help us in ways that we don't yet understand.
0: Well, thank you for that answer. And I suppose the first step of addressing any problem is to acknowledge it exists. It's been fantastic hearing from you today, Eva, Uh, and thank you so much for the thought and effort you've put into each and every answer. It really has been fantastic, and I'm sure our listeners will agree. Um, And speaking of our listeners, we are at the end of another podcast, so thank you for listening at home or wherever you are today. Um, And so all that remains for me to say is that we really look forward to welcoming you back to the next one. Thank you very much, and bye-bye.